What is up, movie friends? Welcome back to Raiders of the Lost Podcast. I'm Anthony. And I'm James, and this is episode 33, our final in the series of our horror Halloween episodes. This is going to be slasher icons, and this episode will include the originals of several franchises, including Scream, Halloween, Nightmare on Elm Street, Friday the 13th, and Texas Chainsaw Massacre. These are some of the most iconic horror films that were made in the 70s and 80s, and they pioneered a new genre of the slasher genre, which obviously was made famous and kind of started with films like uh, Psycho and Black Christmas, but really some of these are what really paved the way for the genre. Hitchcock changed filmmaking with Psycho, but then films like this, like Black Christmas, The Hills of Eyes, The Last House on the Left, they brought a real graphic nature to horror. And now we're blessed with this amazing genre of slasher icons. And horror films have actually always been very popular. If you look back at like the 20s, 30s, and 40s, and 50s, horror was a big um, genre, but it wasn't anything like a slasher movie. It was creature and monster horror movies. So you had things like King Kong, uh, the creature from the Black Lagoon. Nosferatu. Nosferatu, uh, the Invisible Man. So the horror came at the expense of a monster or a creature. But then this genre became centered on the horror caused by other people, which is, I think, actually more scary. And for the occasion, we dressed up for our final Halloween episode. Obviously, I'm uh, Ace Ventura, pet detective over here. Alrighty then. Nice. That's good. <laughs> and, I'm I, Indiana, I, and I'm Indiana Jones. I think uh, Jim Carrey is the number one person I get called uh, that I look like, so I figured I might as well dress up for him as Halloween. Yeah, your hair already is big and giant, so the amount of hair gel I, I had to use to keep the hair up like this would blow your freaking I heard, mind. I heard the blow dryer on for thirty five minutes. It was not <laughs> easy to do this. I'm not even kidding. Like it took it took us all twelve minutes. <laughs> um, this episode of Raise the Lost podcast is brought to you by our friends at MoviePosters.com. Use coupon code Raiders fifteen for fifteen percent off your order today. We are also brought to you by Manscaped. Get 20% off your order and free shipping using coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout. Again, Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off and free shipping from Manscaped.com. And real quick, before we get started, if you like our content in our podcast, the best thing you can do is subscribe to our YouTube channel and share our show. Follow us on Spotify Podcast, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon, wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find us. Leaving those five-star reviews really helps us get seen. I know every show says it, but it really puts us up in ranking, so please leave a five-star review if you have time, especially those written reviews are very nice to read. We also have a Patreon now, so you can check us out there and support us monthly. Each patron gets specific perks, including a personalized video sent to you, as well as monthly shout-outs on the podcast by top-tier patrons. And that Patreon, we're using the money to buy new things for the set, we got new microphones coming in, we got these wardrobes, things for our desks, so... We put the money from our Patreon to good use on the show. Yep. We're investing everything we have into the show to make it as good as possible for you all listening and watching at home. Now let's begin episode 33, Slasher Icons with Scream. This film was directed by Wes Craven in 1996. It follows a horror film-inspired serial killer who terrorizes a charming community and focuses attention on a single young teen. And Wes Craven's all over this episode as he should be. He created two of the biggest horror franchises of all time with Scream and A Nightmare on Elm Street, plus other films that he started the genres with, with The Hills Have Eyes. So this guy pretty much dedicated his entire life to the genre of horror, specifically slasher horror. He's highly innovative, very creative, and he helped build the genre by pushing it to boundaries it hadn't gone yet. Yeah, and there's a reason why we're, two of his movies are on this list. And Scream itself is actually, it's kind of a meta spoof on 
horror movies, and who better to do it than Wes Craven? It's so ironic because the killer's inspiration for killing is horror movies. Yeah, that's my favorite part about the movie is it's like the sarcastic horror com- comedic take throughout the entire film, and it's basically a satire and also um, a homage to horror films. It's kind of like Cabin in the Woods, or even you could say that that Scream is satire on horror films, whereas Scary Movie is parody. They're kind of one and the same, Scary Movie and Scream. And ironically, Scream's original title was actually Scary Movie, but they changed the title actually after they found out that Michael Jackson, Janet Jackson's single Scream was coming out. So they changed it to Scream to kind of cash in on that on that title. Oh, they capitalized on it. But, but I mean, this film is full of characters who are constantly talking about horror films. They're talking about, they're naming characters like Hannibal Lecter, uh, they're talking about like Jamie Lee Curtis and Halloween. Yeah, they're talking yeah. about Tom Cruise, and they're constantly talking about horror tropes, horror cliches. They talk like they're not in a movie, but they actually are in a movie. Their dialogue is also full of horror cliches that that make it work in sort of a self-destructive way. Yeah, and even Jamie Kennedy's character points out all the rules in horror movies, like the virgin survives and and the the boyfriend is the killer and all these all these horror tropes and archetypes that he's always pointing out. Yeah, sex and drugs will get you killed and yeah. also if you say I'll be right back then you're automatically going to get killed too. I'll be right back. Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> but this movie I think its strength is its comedy because the movie is very scary at times. There are scenes that are pretty terrifying, especially I remember being a kid seeing this and being absolutely terrified by it. But also it's very funny and very silly and goofy and it's it's ultimately a lot of fun. I would say this movie is just a great time. Yeah, Wes Craven and screenwriter Kevin Williamson, they set up the film so perfectly. Like the first thing that happens when we turn this movie on is we get that old school Dimension logo, Dimension film. I miss that logo. I miss that one so much. Yeah. And then we, there's no, it's just a blackness with just screaming and it just gets you into the mood of like, you're about to get scared shitless in this film. And we have that opening 12 minute scene with Drew Barrymore and her character Casey being tormented, played with, and then killed by by the ghost face killer. And this, this scene, it's like I love opening scenes to horror movies because if they're done right, it really sets the mood. And with Scream, we get a sense of the killer. You know, this guy, he's he's charming on the phone. He's actually very charismatic. He's clearly intelligent. He's got like an interesting voice. But he's also sadistic, evil, and a merciless killer by what we see with what he does, especially to the boyfriend next to the pool in, in the floodlights. Oh, that that opening scene is so iconic, and I think it's a really great opening, one of the best in in all of horror movies. Drew Barrymore is great in it, but just the idea that someone could be stalking you and is calling your house and tormenting you—that's just terrifying. When shit does start happening, it gets this. This scene actually gets very disturbing by the end of it. When we see what he, the killer ends up doing to Drew Barrymore's character, it's pretty messed up. Yeah, it's different now when you watch it because everyone has a smartphone and phones are kind of just like part of our lives no matter what. But this Have, is ba- Having a, a portable phone was such a cool thing in the house. Yeah, but we're talking about where people, if they wanted to call you, that's why they had your number. They're, you weren't getting random calls very often from telemarketers, sometimes wrong numbers. But like if someone wanted to call you, they're going to call you. Yeah. During the filming of this scene, Drew Barrymore actually called 911 for real multiple times by accident because the prop master forgot to turn the phone off. The local police station got several calls from them on set, and they ended up calling the set back asking what's going on, why are they getting so many phone calls. (laughs) And also, Drew Barrymore wasn't originally cast in this opening role. She was originally casted as Sidney Prescott, the lead in the film, but she had to drop out to the lead because of scheduling conflicts. And so instead, she wanted to do this opening role because... 
in her eyes, if she did this, then no one would see her getting killed. No one would see it coming because she was such a huge star in 1996 when this came out. It's just like in Psycho where the lead actress, she gets killed 40 minutes into the movie. You think she's going to be the lead throughout the film, but before the movie hit the halfway point, she's dead. So it has a similar effect to that film. Yeah, we just get also like the start of this like playful banter about what's your favorite scary movie and again this is a, a theme throughout the entire film this again is a satire on horror films but it, they embrace it they, they embrace the tropes they embrace the cliches and the serial killer ghostface killer was also inspired by a real serial killer called the gainesville ripper who terrorized uh teens in a college town in florida i remember how popular that costume was when these films were coming out like, everyone was Ghostface for You're one year. Ghostface. Yeah, everyone did it at least once for Halloween. But for, like, a decade and a half, maybe yeah. maybe because Scream lasted for, like, four movies throughout the late 90s and early 2000s, but then mm. Scary Movie made it popular again, too, so it kind of revitalized it had two that franchises. icon. Yeah, yeah, it revitalized the icon of Ghostface. And then there was that famous What's Up What's commercial. Up? What's Up? <laughs> <laughs> I remember I had, a, I had a Scream mask, or we had one where you, it was, like, um, a, a clear mask in front of the mask where blood poured out so you could squeeze a button oh, yeah, and like I remember that. stream down the yeah, face yeah, of yeah. it. Yeah, that was a good one. But everyone was obsessed with Scream and Ghostface was the most popular costume for so long. They actually originally designed Ghostface's costume to be all white because they wanted him to look like a ghost but they ended up thinking that it looked too much like a KKK. Way uh, too much. So they ended up going with a black costume with a white mask. And again, that opening scene, we get a sense of the entire film. We understand pretty quickly the character of the serial killer and we know what we're in for the re for the rest of the film. And one of the great strengths of Scream is the characters are very memorable. They're well acted, well written. Um, Sydney, Billy, Stu, Randy, Gail, Dewey, Tatum—they're all iconic horror characters that you still think of to this to this day. Especially for Courtney Cox, this was a big. Everyone knew her as Monica from Friends, who's a, a pretty nice and cool person. I think seeing Courtney Cox playing a bit of an asshole like a bloodthirsty news reporter just trying to gain as much fame as possible. A new way to look at her in this movie. And then Nev Campbell just blew up from this movie. Yeah, Nev Campbell is Sydney Prescott. She's clearly one of the most iconic female characters in horror of all time. And she's, you know, up there in the ranks of Scream Queens with Jamie Lee Curtis for sure. Uh, she gives a great performance. She's probably the best actor in Scream, hands down. Oh, absolutely. She does the best job out of everybody. It's, not, it's honestly not even close. Um, and Nev is just incredibly relatable to an audience. Uh, she seems like that girl next door. She could be anybody, somebody you know, someone you went to high school with. Um, and again, she's a terrific actress. Wes Craven did a really great job with building the suspense and mystery about who the killer was because throughout the film, he places several little hints and clues that re regarding several characters because... He's trying to keep you guessing, like, who's the killer in this movie. It was very smart of him to have Billy get arrested within the first act of the movie. Because if Billy got arrested, then there's no... So early in the film, there's no way he's the killer, right? Because, like, they get a, there's no way they catch the killer before the, the movie even kicks off. So it can't be Billy. So it keeps the audience suspicions away from Billy by having him get arrested so early. Yeah, because he gets exonerated basically because uh, while he's in jail, Sydney gets a call from the killer and Billy was in jail so he couldn't have possibly called her. But Craven does a lot of things where, like you're talking about by avoiding suspicion of characters and putting suspicion on other characters, like even the principal played by the Fonz, he, he seems kind of sketchy the way he's talking to the kids when they're in trouble in the principal's With office. The scissors, yeah. yeah um, and he's playing with the mask. Yeah, and then the sheriff, um, even he gets a hint because, or a potential cop, because Craven does this 
very noticeable close-up of the boots of the sheriff, which yeah. are almost identical, or if not identical, to the killer of the Ghostface killer. And that I looked means, at it; it's pretty close. They're, yeah. very, they're not identical, but they're very similar. Yeah, very similar. And to me, when I see that, I'm like, oh, he's probably trying to make it seem like is it the sheriff or is it another cop? Maybe it could be Dewey. And then Dewey is basically the most useless cop in the history of policing. Horrible cop, by the way. I like, think terrible. He, I, I think, did Wes, do you think the, he made him this way in this film to poke fun at the fact that cops never do anything in slasher movies? I think so, yeah, because he's clearly just comic relief. Completely useless. And then Doofus in a... <laughs> in <laughs> Special a, Officer Doofy. In a scary movie is just yeah. the most hysterical parody of it of, I've ever seen in my life. But, like, uh, Sydney gets a phone call from Ghostface um, when she's at uh, Rose McGowan's house, and then... So they hang up, and then Dewey comes out in the hallway with his gun. It's like, it's who like, are you going to shoot? Where are, what are you doing, man? He's such, a, he's such a bonehead in this movie. Going back to that opening scene with Drew Barrymore, in order to keep her hysterical and, and on the verge of tears, Wes Craven would constantly tell her horrible stories about animal cruelty because she's a, a big animal lover in real life. And so he terrorized her by telling her these stories in order to keep her emotional during the filming of the scene. Throughout Scream, this town is being terrorized by this serial killer. And we don't know who it is, but we do know that they love film. They're inspired by horror films. We do know that they have to be a local because of the knowledge they have of the town and where local um, uh, high school students live. Probably a high schooler themselves because of the killing of the principal. And this is all connected somehow to Sidney Prescott because she became she becomes the main target of this killer. The killer, like, you know, gets its hands wet and dirty and kills a few people here and there. But Sidney's clearly the main goal of the killer. And, and also we, she has death in her past. Her mother was killed the year previous. Yeah, so it's lining up to it's a one-year anniversary from when her mother was viciously killed and... Sydney helped um, put a man away in prison for it with the testimony that is questioned by Gail Weathers, the reporter who was writing a book about Sydney's mother and her murder. And Sydney helped put away character Cotton Weary for the death of her mother, who was having an affair with her. That's the rumor that Gail's trying to report. But uh, Sydney insists that Weary raped her mother and killed her viciously. And Weary's played by Liev Shriver, who we don't really see in, except for on TV. Gail is arguing that Sydney put an innocent man behind bars because of her testimony against him, which could have been false. Yeah, so Sydney has to kind of deal with this internal conflict of, is what she said accurate? Uh, is it flawed? Is it biased because she wanted someone to catch her killer? Did she not want to admit the flaws of her mother in terms of having an affair and sleeping around with other men? And we're also dealing with Sydney's social life and her friends, including boyfriend Billy, played by Skeet Ulrich, who was cast in the role partly because he looks a lot like Johnny Depp in Nightmare Before Elm Street. It's crazy how much this guy looks like Johnny Depp. Ulrich's a good-looking dude, not going to lie. <laughs> um, and so Billy has that cliche suspect vibe about him the whole entire film. He looks like a bad boy. Uh, looks like he doesn't really care about anything except for trying to get in Cindy's pants. But the first time you see this movie, in your head, even though he's been exonerated, there's no way that Billy isn't the killer he's he has the killer vibe just like randy suspects because randy's like he's got killer written all over him <laughs> because randy is like that meta character who is the expert on horror films he's playing horror films um he knows all the rules about horror movies he knows who the killers should be who the suspects are everybody's a suspect don't have sex he's never been so lucky to be a virgin before he's like he's talking to us the audience when he's talking to other people you know what i mean 
And then this all culminates into, it's a teen movie, so there's going to have to be a big party. Even though the town's in quarantine because of a serial killer. This is a, a huge plot hole for me. The town's in lockdown. There's a serial killer on the loose. Kids are getting killed, like, every single night. But they're having a huge house party. Officer Dewey is dropping off his sister Tatum and Sidney Prescott to a house party with underage drinking. With the underage drinking, and he's a cop. And then he shows up at the party with Gail Weathers like, oh, I'm the cool guy. I'm going to hang out and drink beers. He's drinking a beer with these kids. What kind of cop is this guy? Awful cop. Or, I mean, he could be the coolest cop. Who knows? <laughs> and, of course, this this house party is going to be the scene of the climax in the crazy twist ending, the big reveal of who the killer is. If you haven't seen it, I suggest skipping ahead a little bit if you haven't. Um, the killer is Stu and Billy, spearheaded by Billy because Billy's mother left left Billy and left town and skipped town on him because Sydney's mother was having an affair with his father. And so Billy was abandoned as a child by his mother. And this raged him and, and filled him with so much anger and hate and the desire to kill Sydney. And he's the one who killed Sydney's mother. And he hasn't finished his job until he gets to kill Sydney Prescott too. And the reason why it seems to be that ghost pa- Ghostface can show up at at multiple points during an attack is because it's actually two of them being Ghostface at the same time. Which is Ghostface calls Sydney when when uh, Billy's in jail. Mm-hmm. And also, I think once you've seen this movie a bunch of times, we were just talking about the garage scene and how like that scene is full of Ghostface. Like he's very clumsy. He's getting like destroyed by a, a fridge door. Yeah. Like, and then Rose McGowan does like She's throwing a jujitsu move. She's throwing b- bottles at him. He's falling down all over the place. I think if you watch it a bunch of times, you can tell when Billy's Ghostface and when Stu's Ghostface because Stu is. Very silly and goofy and clumsy, but Billy, he's been, you know, playing this for so long. He seems, like, very intent, and he he executes his kills perfectly, like in the first one. Oh, I think you're right, killing. absolutely. So I think you can kind of spot who Billy is when he's Ghostface and who Stu is. And I think Billy is also the Ghostface in the bathroom. He misses out on Sydney there, but then he very effectively kills the principal. Yeah, exactly. So I think you can tell who's who. Yeah, I think you're right. And that leads to that probably the most famous scene in the movie is when... When Billy and Stu reveal everything to to Sydney, and then they start stabbing each other. It's a pretty smart plan. Their plan is to frame Sydney's father for the murders of everybody and doing all the killing in in the town. Because of course it's a horror movie, so at the beginning of the film, Sydney's father leaves on a business trip for a couple days, which leaves his teenage daughter daughter home alone for a couple days. Obviously, I mean it's very it's a setup, man. Get embrace those tropes. You gotta embrace those tropes. (laughs) And so they they have him tied up and kidnapped, and they're going to frame him for all the murders. They're going to kill Sidney, and then they stab themselves a few times to make it seem like they survived the the attack. And then we have the great lines by uh, Stu, who's getting stabbed way too many times by Billy. He's like, I'm freaking dying here, man. Getting a little woozy here, Billy. My mom and dad are going to be so mad at me. Yeah, Matthew Lillard actually improvised all of those lines. Wounding themselves makes them susceptible to what happens next when Gail shows up with a gun. And when they incapacitate Gail, Sydney's gone. Which makes you think that if they had just waited to stab each other after they killed everyone, it would have been way more effective. But it wouldn't give Sydney the chance to do my favorite thing in the movie, which is now she becomes the killer. She puts on the ghost face costume. She starts to call and torment and play with the killers because now she's the killer. And then uh, Stu's talking around the phone. He's like, "Are you really? Did you really call the police?" <laughs> <laughs> I feel woozy here, man. <laughs> and then uh, and then Sydney fucks them up. She smashes the TV on Stu's face, and then and then stabs Billy with an umbrella, and then shoots him in the head after after Randy points out there's always going to be a second scare by the killer at the end of the movie. One last scare. But yeah, this movie is so much fun. It's a great time every time you see it. It's scary, it's funny, um, the cast is great, 
And then it's just, it's fun to watch Wes Craven just poke fun at the genre he helped build. And not just poke fun at it, it's a celebration of the horror genre, it's a celebration of yeah. the slasher genre. And this film basically resuscitated the slasher genre from the dead because it all slasher films became like B-rated straight to, v, straight to video blockbuster rental movies rather than being shown at the movie theaters. But Scream brought the genre back to life. Yeah, and... I think right after this, I know what you did last summer came out, and that was uh, is is I mean, the guy kills everyone with a hook. <laughs> is that Freddie Prince Jr.? Yeah, and I mean, Sarah Michelle Gellar. Yeah, I mean, Freddie Prince Jr.'s in the movie is not gonna be that good. <laughs> but I actually, I really like Scream, um, and it's it's a great movie. I think. I think it's my favorite ep- uh, movie on this list. There's a great Wes Craven cameo in this film. He plays the janitor when uh, right before the principal get killed gets killed. Oh, he uh. Makes a noise and then he looks out in the hall. He hears a noise, looks out in the hallway, and there's a janitor mopping. It's Wes Craven, and he's wearing a very similar outfit to uh, Freddy Krueger. Yeah, he's wearing a green and red striped sweater, and even the principal says, Oh, not you, Fred. These are the four rules officially that Randy lists out for horror movies one, you will not survive if you have sex, if you drink or do drugs, if you say, I'll be right back, and everyone is a suspect. And the script pretty much adheres to all these rules, with some exceptions. Um, and some characters even press their luck throughout the film. And this, this is because Craven wants to toy with the audience's expectations. And one of my favorite scenes in the movie is there's the scene where half the party's gone out and then Randy's leading like a horror movie marathon with some high schoolers, but then he ends up being the only one left in the room. And we get shots of a TV, the reflection of the TV with Randy watching it. And he's watching Halloween. And in the scene... Randy's pleading with Jamie Lee Curtis, turn around, Jamie, he's right behind you. And in the actual room, Ghostface is creeping up right behind Randy. And the joke also works on another level because both Kennedy and Jamie Lee Curtis are named Jamie. Ah, funny. The producers actually originally did not like the Ghostface mask and actually requested that the filmmakers film Drew Barrymore's opening scene with several different kinds of masks. But the filmmakers refused to do it and implied that if you wait and watch the scene when we finish it, you'll like it. And then when they finish the scene, they send it to the producers and they ended up loving it. Scream is a classic horror film. It's one of my favorite of all time in the horror genre. You got to check it out if you haven't seen it. If you have seen it, but you haven't watched it in a while, put it on this weekend. You're going to love it. It's a great time. It's hysterical. It's terrifying. The gore is great. The characters are rich. It's just a fun time. This episode of Raiders of the Lost Podcast is brought to you by our friends at MoviePosters.com who supplied us with these awesome movie posters. I got Gladiator. I got Pulp Fiction. Check it out. So thank you, David, at MoviePosters.com for hooking it up with these. Uh, They'll also be sponsoring our next giveaway, so look out for that soon. Use coupon code Raiders15 to get 15% off your order. MoviePosters.com is the number one site to get movie posters. They have been for decades and years. If you love movies as much as us, I highly suggest checking them out to get your next poster. They have everything from original designs, framing, backlights, canvases, even plaque designs. Again, Raiders 15 for 15% off your order at checkout at MoviePosters.com. On to the second film in the episode, Halloween. Halloween was directed by John Carpenter in 1978, co-written by John Carpenter and Deborah Hill. The film stars Donald Pleasance, Jamie Lee Curtis, Tony Morin, and Nancy Keys. This film had a budget of $325,000 and a box office of $47 million. Brutal killer Michael Myers escapes from a mental hospital after 15 years to kill again in his small hometown of Haddonfield, Illinois. 
He sets sights on a local girl and stalks her until he can't resist the urge to kill. Halloween is one of the most profitable horror films of all time. Again, we're talking about a $325,000 budget grossing $47 million box office. That's an absurd profit. We're not talking about total gross. We're return talking about on investment. return on investment profit is insane. And it also joined the ranks of classic horror films and helped define the genre of slasher. Yeah, that's like a $150 million right now for inflation. Yes, there were other pretty graphic horror movies before Halloween came out. Like we mentioned, there's Black Christmas, The Hills Have Eyes. But I would say that Halloween was the, the first, strictly speaking, slasher movie. Because when I think of slasher movie, I think of like one person, one character, one villain who's killing as many people as they can. What do you th- wouldn't you agree or yes and no I think yes uh, Halloween defined the slasher genre and you know paved the way for all these other films to come out that we're talking about in this episode of course but Halloween's also very much a stalker movie more than anything I mean we spend a lot of time in the majority of the time like with Michael Myers stalking his prey planning his moves just kind of watching people from the distance um, some people f- even find this a little tedious or annoying but you have to understand the character he's a psychotic killer who just escaped a mental institution that he's been in for 15 years. Um, He's been waiting for this opportunity for 15 years, counting down the days, waiting for a chance to be free and try to savor his time and doing what he was born to do and kill. And it's, it's more realistic of someone being stalked and killed probably from from all the movies and, and crime and horror and serial killer podcasts I've heard, because we're there with Michael, we're doing the stalking, we're doing his hunting too. Yeah, I think you're right, because nowadays with modern horror movies, we're used to action, action, action and horror rather than the slow burn tension of this film. So I think if you watch it in the context of actually being in 1978, it was much scarier. And you're right, there is this voyeuristic quality to the filmmaking itself. There's like a lot of POV shots there's a lot of shots of filming characters from a distance or filming them from outside of a window looking in on their home. And so you're right. They, they really capture the idea and the theme of stalking someone with the filmmaking. Yeah, and we're like right there with Michael a lot of times. We're like, we're, we can see his legs, we can see his hand, we can see his shoulder while we're watching all these people. So like, it's really interesting to like always be with the killer, which is super fun, which again is part of the slasher genre and was a new thing to happen. Yeah, and then... Having it set on Halloween night is actually perfect for Michael Myers because it's pretty much the only day where he can wander around wearing a mask without causing any kind of attention because it's Halloween day and everyone's dressing up running around the neighborhoods. Yeah, even while he's walking around in broad daylight. It's not unusual, really. It's weird, but not unusual to see someone in a costume even during the daytime. Yeah, you just be like, oh, it's Halloween. And I love the opening of this film because we get those really fun credits that... uh, that Carpenter does with his music, which was iconic and one of the greatest strengths of the film. But also we have that like slow pushing of that jack-o'-lantern mm-hmm. that's lit up as well as those fun titles on the right. And then the opening scene of this film is this really interesting and fun long take steady cam shot of a mysterious person who's spying on these young teenagers. Um, they go into this house and then they eventually kill the girl. And it's a great way to put the audience member in, in the shoes of the killer because it's POV of the killer the whole time. Yeah, he even puts on the mask and you are now looking through the eye holes. Yeah, and so we don't know who the killer is yet, but clearly when he's watching the girl and she's naked and combing her hair um, and he goes in there with the knife, 
she turns and says, Michael. So obviously it's someone she knows, and then he kills her. And then the scene ends with him walking out of the house, and then to uh, an older couple, his parents take off his mask, and we find out it's six-year-old Michael Myers. Yeah, it's pretty messed up. And then the next thing we see is that Michael has escaped from his mental institution, and Dr. Loomis has to set out and try and find him because he doesn't know what's going to happen now with this crazy killer is out on the out on the loose i want to go back to a minute about like the psychology of of why does michael myers kill who is he um why do all these movies of halloween halloween movies have the theme of sex and i think a lot of people think that mike myers wants to punish people who have sex but i look at it as michael myers is driven by sex and out of fear and insecurity of sex and that's what drives him to kill and it's kind of accurate or it is accurate to real-life serial killers who most of the time are killing out of sexual desires and frustrations. And that's Michael Myers' pretty much entire identity that we get in the first scene of the film. If you analyze his first kill, he's masked and he watches his sister go up to have sex with her, with a, her boyfriend. He sees her naked while she's combing his hair. Maybe, you know, he's a, he's a young kid. Maybe he's starting to go through puberty. He could have intimate feelings for his sister. And killing her, to me becomes his first like sexual experience or sexual release, which is very similar to real-life serial killer Ed Camper, who he's famously seen on the show Mindhunter, who is portrayed on that show and in various podcasts, if, you've, if you're into true crime and serial killer podcasts, where he would stalk and kill women because he said he didn't know how to interact with women. He would be obsessed with women. And he wouldn't know how to talk to them, so he would just kill them instead, which is a horrible thing to do, obviously. It's crazy. So you can argue that... That's one of the reasons why Mike does Michael does this, and you can argue that he needed to feed that feeling and needed to feel that again, which is why he was so desperate to escape, and he finally got his opportunity. Yeah, some serial killers actually are, um, find sexual arousal from killing, so I think that's a, a pretty good assessment of why he kills. I used to just think that it was just he just killed because he wanted to kill, and it's kind of like a, a Joker-type thing where— there's no explanation for it. Some people are just born evil. Yeah, I think it's just, it's more of a, a release. He's obviously angry that his sister didn't take him out trick-or-treating or anything, and he's probably had a, a bit a of an overreaction. Trouble relationship with her, but again, with the scene where she's in the nude, and he's a young kid, maybe going through puberty, and this is kind of like a release for him, in my opinion. Yeah, and that could make sense for why he tends to kill teenagers who are having sex. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, good point, man. Thanks, bro. Like so what happens to see now my experience of listening to obsessively to true crime podcasts <laughs> is paying off, man. You're, you're an expert. You could work for the FBI now. You know, I could uh, do some uh, profiles on some people if you need me to. Adding on to that, I think what makes Michael Myers so terrifying is not aside from his desire to kill is that his physicality. He's he's very slow with how he moves, um, and his his mask is just really really scary. There's something about the Mike Myers mask when you see it. It just freaks you out because it's not like any other mask you've ever seen before. And they actually made it by purchasing a William Shatner Star Trek mask for $1. And then they painted it white, ripped off the eyebrows, and then made the hair a little crazy. And before this mask, they actually had Michael Myers wearing a clown mask. To, like, play back on when he's a kid wearing the clown outfit. Yeah, and I just think that if they had stuck with the clown mask, it wouldn't have had the same impact as the Michael Myers mask. There's something about just the mask. It just seems like 
empty you know what i mean no i get that 100 percent. and the cool thing about it is they hide it for as long as they can they, they don't show it for a while it's kind of like you're dressed up as indy the first indiana jones movie spielberg hides indy's face for a good amount of time mm. in the opening scene of that movie and so carpenter hides mike myers face pretty well even though he's wearing the mask throughout the the stalking scenes really you get a quick glimpse of it when he's watching Lori's little brother at elementary school like outside in the recess area and another little kid bumps into him and like Michael Myers like bends down to like push the kid away and you get a real quick glimpse of what is he wearing a mask is it is it all white what is that thing yeah cuz all we've been seeing is the jumpsuit and real quick are there cons to this film absolutely i mean it was made in 1978 on a budget of $325,000 Michael Myers is an atrocious stabber. He's horrible at stabbing people. He just has just that one motion. He doesn't go forwards, nothing to the side, no slashing. He's just strictly uh, right angle down, uh, acute angle to obtuse angle, acute angle to obtuse angle. He's every a, He's a simple guy. Every stab. <laughs> he's a very slow walker, which you pointed out, we all know. Um, he somehow survives multiple gunshot wounds to the body at the end of the film. But again, this was you got to take it with a grain of salt when you watch these old horror films, especially on such low budgets, which is actually a really common theme of all these movies that we're talking about. Very low budgets with huge profits. These were the independent movies of, of the time. These little tiny micro budget films, and they were making tons of tens and tens of millions of dollars. And then this film catapulted Jamie Lee Curtis into stardom. She became Scream Queen 101. She's number one all time. Yeah. And ironically, Jamie Lee Curtis is the daughter of Janet Lee who starred in Alfred Hitchcock's classic movie, Psycho. Yeah, she's the one who gets stabbed in the shower. And they've yeah. actually recreated that photo. And Jamie Lee Curtis also hates horror movies, despite being the screen queen and being in so many. Yeah, that's pretty ironic. And so Michael, the, after we cut to 15, after we cut to years later, he escapes from an, his uh, insane asylum. And I think it's insinuated that for eight years they tried to help him, and then for the last seven They've just done their best to lock him up and keep him still or just keep him not from hurting anybody because who knows what was going on inside the, the hospital. And now he has a trial. Yeah, so now he has escaped, and he has this compulsion, obviously, to return to his home hometown of Haydenfield, um, even killing a truck driver en route. He doesn't immediately start looking for villains. He actually, villains, he actually goes into his old house, which is you know the cursed, the cursed house of the neighborhood, um, even uh, Lori's walking the kitty babe she babysits home and like the kid goes up to the door and, and Michael's just watching out the window as he gets close to the door. Michael is just stalking Lori and it's very creepy and he's stalking her outside her outside the windows of her classroom, which we reminds us a lot of it follows, which uh, harken back to Carpenter's classical lot. Yeah, she keeps seeing the car at first. Yeah, the car, which is very noticeable because it's like a it's got the logo of the institution. Yeah, on it's it. got the institution logo. Um He's hiding, he's hiding behind bushes, and, and Lori and her friends see him up ahead on the sidewalk, but then he disappears. So he's kind of just constantly around Lori. You can assume that when we, we're not with Michael, he's close by. Yeah, there's a, a mysterious quality about Michael, and I like this one more than the other Halloweens because this was before they introduced any kind of supernatural elements to Michael Myers, like how he keeps coming back to life and how he's like— Nothing kills him. Nothing can stop him. Whereas he's very mysterious in this movie, but it still is within the realm of reality. And the main climax is Michael Myers finally trying to fulfill his desire to kill this girl he's been stalking, Lori, as well. He starts off by killing um, her friends across the street who are having sex. And then. Sex. <laughs> sex. <laughs> and then. Um, <laughs> 
and then he goes after Lori. And it's a great back and forth of, of her constantly being chased by Michael. And again, we're, we do get the the corny stabs. He could have just easily stabbed her, but he misses and just like slices her shirt and her arm. But again, 1978, it's a horror film. A very tiny budget. They had to probably film seven scenes every day. So keep in mind that they were just trying to get the shots done as quickly as possible. Yeah, I mean, Jamie Lee Curtis even purchased all her own wardrobe for the film. That's crazy. So, like, again, very low budget. They didn't have much to work with. But they did a phenomenal job, of course. Yeah. Dr. Loomis is trying to track him down as well. And then he teams up with the sheriff, of course, to try to track Michael down. And then dynamic duo right there. Dynamic duo one-two punch right there. And the film ends with... um, Michael attacking Lori, but Dr. Loomis comes and shoots Michael like five times who falls through a window like off off the top floor of the house and then he's on the grass and then the doctor goes to look outside the window and Michael's gone. He doesn't even look surprised. He's like, damn, I knew he was going to do that. <laughs> and like, I've, I've seen the sequels. Yeah, yeah. And then we, we kind of knew that was going to happen and it's something that we know to expect from Halloween movies from then on. But it's still, it's a great ending shot where his body's just disappeared um, without a trace. And so, obviously, they didn't think that this, they weren't sure if this movie would make any money, but they certainly set it up to be like, oh, we could say, we could tell another story in this world. Yeah, and of course, because we don't find out until the sequel in Halloween 2, which basically pretty much picks up right after the end of this film, that Lori's actually Michael's younger sister. She was adopted, um, and that becomes his motivation that we learn of trying to find her and kill her, but that's obviously never revealed at all. And I'm sure they didn't even think of it yet. Yeah. Uh, she just seems to be the random person that Michael saw in the town that he wanted to, to kill and get his uh, frustrations out on. But um, obviously we're just focusing on the original Halloween this episode. Yeah. This film obviously was revelatory in the, in the horror genre and helped pave the way for all slasher movies um, following it. In this movie, it's great. If you want to watch a horror movie and get scared, Halloween's the, the one for you. And the original Sorry. title of Halloween was actually The Babysitter Murders. That's awful. The Babysitter Murders. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty bad. Um, and Carpenter actually had to use a fear meter for Jamie Lee Curtis because a lot of films aren't shot chronologically and shot out of sequence usually. So he had to give Jamie Lee Curtis like a level of terror that she should be feeling in each scene. And the stabbing effects were made with a knife plunged into watermelon. Which, if you think about it, it's exactly what it sounds like. Yeah. Moving on to Nightmare on Elm Street. This film was directed and written by Wes Craven in 1984. It stars Heather Lankenkamp, Johnny Depp, and Robert England. It had a budget of $1.8 million and had a worldwide box office of $25 million. The monstrous spirit of a slain child murderer seeks revenge by invading the dreams of teenagers whose parents were responsible for his untimely death. I would say that growing up, I think Freddy Krueger was the the film villain that I was most terrified of. Yeah, for me, it was Freddy and Chucky probably, but Freddy was... I was terrified to watch any Freddy movie. Yeah, because we, we have a bunch of older brothers, and then so they would have us watch these crazy horror movies with them when we were little kids, so... I was tormented by Freddy in my dreams, just like in the movies. <laughs> <laughs> That's probably one of the reasons why he's so scary is because yeah. he gets at you in his dream, in your dreams. This movie is just like Inception, but with uh, with horror. Dude, I, I wrote that down too yeah. for my notes. Yeah, so Freddy creates these like nightmare worlds where he um, gets these teens in, 
And then in this nightmare world realm is when he can hurt them and kill them. Yeah, and also throughout the film, just like in Inception, you don't always know when you're in a dream. Obviously, eventually when you start to see Freddy or you see things that are weird. Surreal stuff, But yeah. usually when someone's in a dream for the first couple of minutes, you're like, they're just walking around like a hallway. It's like, or in their room or in their house. And it's like, are they in a dream or are they not in a dream? So the first time you watch it, you don't know what's what. Just like Inception. Yeah, I, I was like, this is this is so much like Inception. It's funny. But, um... It's a it's this is a really great horror movie because it blended slasher with um, supernatural and surrealism in this really cool way and surrealism in the way that they de they depict the dreams with how things change and how like Freddy can do these weird things that are impossible in the real world and so I think it was a, a great blend of all these types of uh, storytelling devices by Wes Craven yeah and in complete contrast to Mike Myers who we just talked about Freddy Krueger is the psychotic, sadistic, wise-ass who's like kind of just like always having way too much fun killing people. Yeah, he's not the silent, foreboding killer who's just slowly following everyone. Like, he is sadistic and he has fun what he's do with what he's doing, and he enjoys tormenting and taunting his victims. And Robert England is amazing as Freddy Krueger. And I think uh, Craven originally tried to cast a couple of stunt uh, actors to play the role, but it just didn't work out because he realized that he needed a, a talented actor because... The acting in this movie isn't great. Isn't great ever. It's kind of you know a lot. Is of it in any slasher movie? <laughs> <laughs> Again, low budget, one point eight million dollars, a little more than the other movies. But the acting is suspect. Um, it's pretty decent. Uh, but Robert England obviously stands out in the film as the superior actor to everybody. And every time he's on camera, he's just lighting up the freaking screen, literally and figuratively. <laughs> and his costume is just so iconic. Because not only does he have that leather glove with the knives on it, but he has that that creepy sweater, that green and red striped sweater, which is so iconic now. And Wes Craven originally intended for it to be uh, red and yellow stripes, but then he read in some kind of scientific journal that the most clashing colors to the human retina are red and green. So that's why he made the colors red and green. And also he's that got that fedora hat. And it's just an iconic look, not to mention the burned body and scars and face. And this film opens up with Tina, one of the, not the main character, but one of the, the other side characters in a nightmare with Freddy Krueger. And this is where we get a great introduction to what this movie's going to be. Nothing is explained to us. We're just shown everything. Wes Craven did a very smart job with it. And the great thing about it is Freddy doesn't kill her right away. We'll talk about Freddy for a little bit. Like, who is Freddy Krueger? What are his powers? Where do he gets his powers from? So Freddy is really, his name is Peter Grimm. And Peter Grimm was a child murderer who walked free on charges due to, um, I think it was a warrant that was signed in the wrong place. So on a technicality, he got away with child murders. And for vengeance and justice and frontier justice, if you've seen, Mob the justice. Hateful, if you've seen Hateful Eight, the parents of the children tracked him down and found him in the boiler room where he would take his victims to kill them. The parents poured gasoline into the room and set, on, set him on fire, which is why he's got a melted face and skin and why in all the nightmares and all the dreams, Freddy is in this boiler room. And so and that took place in 1968 when he was killed. And after his death, he began killing the children of the city in their dreams. And one of Nan Nancy's mother is one of those uh, parents, which is why... Freddy is going after her. And for Freddy to kill you, two things need to be possible. You have to be asleep, and you also have to be afraid of him. Fear gives Freddy the power he needs to kill people, and as long as his victims are dreaming, 
Freddy can inhabit and control their dreams and the environments in their dreams to no ends. And he can look inside your mind. He can find out what your deepest fears are and use those fears against you in the dream world. Um, yeah, in the dream world, he's like a god. Basically. And what happens to you in the dream world happens to you in the real world, which is even more terrifying. And that's shown for the first time, which is a great scene when Tina, for the second time, is dreaming is dreaming and she's running away from Freddy inside of her dream. But then Freddy ends up killing her and they don't show it, but instead they show back in her bedroom, she's convulsing and her body's being thrown around in the air by the invisible force of Freddy. And then all of a sudden these these four slashes go across her chest and she starts bleeding out. And her boyfriend Rod's right there watching. So yeah. her boyfriend Rod is watching Tina floating in the air, getting sliced up, blood pouring everywhere. And, and she, her body gets thrown up into the ceiling. Yeah. I think that Chris Nolan really was inspired by this movie to make Inception. I think so, too. Because the way they filmed that scene was they flipped the, the room upside down and kept the camera planted. But Freddy's a terrifying figure because you have to, you have to sleep. There's no way you can escape sleeping. Yeah, human beings have to go to bed. So we have it, to get sleep. And I and even though Nancy tries to prevent it, she tries to take drugs to stay awake, and she tries to watch horror movies to stay awake. Eventually, she's gonna slip into sleep, and that's what's so terrifying is that there's no way to escape um, interacting with Freddy eventually. But Nancy's a fighter, and she's very smart, and she sets up herself to be woken up by alarms and by her friend, by by her boyfriend Glenn, played by Johnny Depp. So there's a couple scenes where. Freddy's about to kill Nancy, but she wakes up by like from like a backup alarm right before, and and then also when she's taken to the hospital and then she wakes up, she finds his hat on her lap, and so that gives her the idea that maybe if I can bring the hat back into the real world, maybe I can bring Freddy into the real world. Yeah, because what's happening is all these kids are getting killed, and obviously none of the parents believe Nancy and what's going on, even though all these kids are having the same nightmares and. Rod is framed for the murder of Tina because he was in the room with her, so everyone thinks that Rod's a psychopathic killer. But then Rod dies in his prison cell being hung by Freddy in his sleep but with the, the sheet inside his jail cell, and they don't get to him in time, and it just looks like a suicide. So no one believes Nancy what's going on. And, of course, what do troubled parents do in horror movies? They make the problems worse. <laughs> so they bring—somehow they have the budget to bring Nancy to, like, this, like— high-tech sleep doctor research facility. experiment facility yeah. where their genius plan is to to wait for Nancy to go to sleep. So Nancy does go to sleep, and she starts going crazy, and they're seeing readings that they've never seen before. And then, like you said, she brings back the hat from her dream. And then everyone's like, where'd she get that hat? It's like, <laughs> he, she just told you where he, she got it. She's wearing a gurney. Come on. This, starts, this gets Nancy to develop the plan to try and somehow grab a hold of Freddy while waking herself up in the dream so that she can bring him back into the real world because maybe if she brings him to the real world, then she can kill him. But she needs Glenn's help. And Glenn, played by Johnny Depp, is a bonehead. This is uh, so this is Johnny Depp's first role ever. He's like a kid in this movie. Yeah. What is he, like 18, 19 he's years gotta old? He's got to be, yeah. Something like that, young as hell. And um, so Glenn's obviously a bonehead, and he falls asleep watching TV with giant headphones on, and we get... The best death in the movie, probably. It's one of the most iconic deaths in all of horror. Where he just sinks. He falls asleep, and he sinks into the bed, and he wakes up when Freddy's grabbing his arms. He's like, no, no. Yeah, he's like, no, no. Freddy just grabs him inside the mattress, and then we have this, like, giant explosion of blood pouring out of his bed. It's, it's hands down one of the most iconic images in horror, I think. And the way they film this is that, so the, the blood is actually, it's not pouring upwards, what they did was they built the set upside down. They framed it upside down, 
and then they poured the blood from the ceiling down to the floor. So the, the blood is actually pouring downwards, but they just flipped the camera. It's very simple, but also very clever at the same time. It's a great image to see the blood just pouring to the ceiling. It's amazing. Yeah, and I don't get how Glenn's mother walks in on this, and she does, they still don't think something weird's going yeah, on. Yeah, it's like, come on, what the fuck? Who just filleted your son into blood and guts? Like, what the hell? Pureed him. Who pureed, who pureed your son? How do you think this is happening? No, it must have been Rod. It's probably Rod. Yeah, <laughs> he's, he's though, dead. Even but... though he's in the ground right now. <laughs> <laughs> and the ironic thing is, all the parents they know that they know who Freddy Krueger is, but they just don't want to admit it. I think that that's what they're they're. I think they know to ignore Freddy Krueger, yeah. or some part of them knows to pr- pretend like he doesn't exist. Yeah, exactly. So I think you might he be can't right. Haunt them. And then another thing that adds to the fear of Freddy Krueger is the uh, the the infamous nursery rhyme, the one two Freddy's coming for you. Three, four, better shut the door. So Freddy, this song was developed around Freddy Krueger's name, which spreads fear to the youth in the neighborhood. Yeah, and Nancy tries to tell everyone that it's just like her dream, but everyone's like, ah, oh, you're crazy, Nancy. Yeah. And the next time that Nancy has a nightmare of Freddy, it's when she's in class after Rod gets arrested. So Rod's, Nancy's father uh, creates an ambush and like uses yeah. Nancy as bait to catch Rod, which he does. Then Nancy goes to school and she has a nightmare in class. And this is where Nancy learns that she can wake herself up to escape from Freddy. So Freddy's about to kill her, but Nancy uses a hot pipe to burn her arm to wake herself up. And so this is what starts to realize that it's in it's in my dreams that Freddy can get at me and I can escape my dreams if I'm good if I'm clever enough. Yeah. And then Nancy comes to understand that she's not gonna get any help from the adults in the neighborhood. And so she's just gonna do it on her own. She develops this plan, she booby traps her house. And then she decides she plans to fall asleep and sets an alarm to wake herself up so that she can capture Freddy and bring him into the real world. Yeah, it's like uh, Home Alone before Home Alone, except with a sadistic killer with knives on his hands. Yeah, and so in the dream, she's in the boiler room and he chases her. She she tries to get his attention rather than being chased by him. Um, and then he he shows she shows up and then they have an, an altercation and then she does wake up. And she wakes up in a room, and she's alone. She's like, oh, man, I guess it didn't work. And then and she's like, I think I am crazy. Yeah, and then Freddy just pops out of, from under her bed and starts screaming and, and chasing her. And still no one will believe her, and she's trapped in her house because her because her mother barred up her windows and doors. Yeah, yeah, that's crazy. She couldn't even get out. And so and she's screaming outside the window for the cops across the street, and they're like, You're, I'm, everything's going to be fine. Don't worry. She's like, he's inside the house with me. <laughs> <laughs> Go to bed, Nancy. But then she she hits him with a bunch of booby traps, Home Alone style, fucks him up, and then Bert, and then sets him on fire. And then they believe him. And yeah. then her father, the sheriff, comes into the house, and Freddy on fire jumps onto her onto her mother, and her mother and Freddy like fall through the mattress into this dream world, this blue smoke like di- alternate dimension, and then disappear. Yeah. And then Nancy's like, "You finally believe me?" And then the sheriff's like, "I mean, I've seen stuff like this before." <laughs> <laughs> Another great practical effect in this film, because again, this is before CGI, everybody. This is back in the day, and this is why these movies still hold up so well, because of practical effects. Another highly iconic horror shot that obviously we've seen and we talked about in Stranger Things, um, which they referenced and paid homage to in Freddy, was Freddy pushing his way and stretching through Nancy's wall while she's asleep. And this is a very iconic shot, 
and it's really cool and chilling, and it still again holds up today because of practical effects. No CGI, man, and they did it in the in the remake. They did it, did it with CGI. And it looks awful compared to this one. Yeah. It's just like a big piece of synthetic whatever paper. So uh, they filmed it by Latex. they fi- they filmed it by stretching uh, spandex fabric across a big hole in the wall, and then Robert England stuck his face and pressed it into the spandex. Still looks so cool. It's just, it's just black spandex. Still looks cool, and then. Nancy saves the day, kills she kills Freddy, and then she wakes up the next day, and her mom's alive, and everything's super fun, and everything's everything's really bright. It seems like, oh, maybe it was all just a dream, and everything was like, oh, the nightmare is over, everything's fine. She gets into the car with her friends, and Billy's driving, and then the top comes up, and it's striped red and red and green, just like Freddy, and then the doors lock, the doors lock, and the car traps them inside, and then and then Nancy's mom, um, Freddy. Bursts through the door behind her and pulls her in through the window. <laughs> <laughs> it's a ridiculous shot. Yeah, and it's it's clearly like a just like a a mannequin or something, but it looks it, it's fun. Yeah, I wonder if Craven wanted to do a happy ending. I think he said he wanted to do a happy ending of just her walking outside, but and then make the whole thing was an entire nightmare of Nancy's the entire film. Mm. But I think it's just so much more fun to have the bad guy win because. No one ever really had the bad guy win ever that much, and so let's just see Freddy get away. I mean, let's see, yeah, Freddy get away with it. I agree. I think it works better with Freddy winning in the end and just they're trapped in this nightmare, maybe forever. Maybe they could be just stuck in this, like, nightmare loop of hell for, with Freddy. It's like Inception Limbo, bro. Yeah, where he just constantly kills him over and over again. Sounds That would bad. be a cool movie. Cool Freddy movie. Not a bad idea. Yeah. But this movie was um, actually produced by the company New Line Cinema, but New Line Cinema was facing serious bankruptcy when this film was made. And the success of A Nightmare on Elm Street saved New Line Cinema from bankruptcy. And they even nicknamed the company the house that Freddie built. Over 500 gallons of fake blood were used filming this movie. It was shot in only 32 days. That's and really fast. The scene where Freddie's arms elongate in that dream and like scrape against the walls in, the, in that like alleyway. Uh, they achieved by they achieved that by having men with fishing poles on each side of the alley operating a set of puppet arms attached to Robert England. That scene kind of looks a little cheesy now. Yeah, yeah, but I mean it's still fun. Yeah. And this movie is actually based on true events, not Freddy Krueger. But in in the 1980s, there was an epidemic of people dying in their sleep during nightmares, and they were mostly immigrants from Cambodia. And the condition became known as Asian Death Syndrome. Wes Craven read a story about this in the newspaper. And this is what gave him the idea for a serial killer who stalks victims in their sleep. And Kruger was also partly inspired by a man who terrified Wes Craven when he was a child. He woke up in the middle of the night and looked out his window and saw this strange old man walking down the street. And he was wearing uh, a fedora hat. And then the man stopped walking and stared right at Wes Craven through the window and it terrified him so much he ran to his brother's room and this inspired the idea of some kind of man who wears this hat could be a villain. This episode of Raiders of the Lost podcast is also brought to you by Manscaped, the leaders in men's below-the-waist grooming. Manscaped offers precision-engineered tools for your comfort, obsesses over technology developments to provide you the best tools for your grooming experience. Manscaped's been super generous. They sent us their performance packages, which features their luxury lawnmower groomer, as well as toners, deodorants, shirts, and boxer briefs. Get 20% off your order and free shipping using coupon code Raiders of the Lost at checkout. Again, Raiders of the Lost at checkout for 20% off your order and free shipping. 
Grooming is a necessary part of life, everybody. This shouldn't be exclusively an ad for men. If you got a boyfriend, father, brothers, siblings, cousins, you need a gift for this holiday season, I highly suggest Manscaped. This is stuff that we actually want. I'm telling you, any guy would freak out if they got something from Manscaped. Really suggest it for gifts this holiday season. Moving on to Friday the 13th, which was directed by Sean S. Cunningham in 1980, written by Victor Miller. A camp of teenage counselors are stalked and killed one by one during its reopening years after a child's drowning and a grisly double murder occurred. This film stars Betsy Palmer, Adrienne King, Six Degrees of Kevin Bacon, and Harry Crosby. This film had a budget of $700,000 and had a worldwide box office of $39 million. Cunningham himself even admitted that they made this movie to piggyback off the success of Halloween. And it ended up working because obviously it made $40 million in, in 1980. I mean, can you blame them? I mean, it's huh? it's this new genre and Halloween was such a massive success and they did it on such a low budget. And it's a very simple storyline. And this is an even more simple storyline, really. And it's just like... Kind of like, oh, we got to quickly get out a movie. What can we do? We got to kind of copy this style. We're going to make a ton of money, maybe have a franchise. Who knows? And I don't blame them for copying the style. Of course, someone was going to do it eventually, so you might as well do it yourself. But they did definitely rip off Halloween big time. Even the opening is like, structurally, it's the same exact <laughs> film, really. Yeah. Um, it's just a different location. We have the POV opening killing steady cam shots. There's of, a lot of POV shots in this movie. Of kids, of teenagers having sex or about to have sex or after they have sex. So obviously very, very similar to Halloween. But again, someone was going to do it. And what's also surprising about this movie is that for anyone who hasn't seen it or hasn't seen it in a while, the famous hockey mask Jason isn't even in this movie. Not really. He's he's briefly yeah. and he's in he's in a dream. He's a child in this movie. Yeah, and uh, we won't spoil what happened. Like there are other parts where he's in the film, but he's really not. He's not the main killer in this movie. Surprisingly, yeah. and uh, the hockey mask was not actually used until Friday the Thirteenth Part Three. Yeah, Part Two. He has this like crazy demented face, and then he wears like a, a bag over. Yeah, his some kind of like bag, like brown bag or something. But yeah, the hockey mask isn't until the third movie, which is pretty crazy when you think about it because Jason's so iconic now. Yeah, so Jason doesn't actually kill some anybody in Friday the 13th, the original. Who do you like better, Jason or Michael Myers? Mike Myers. I, I like, like Mike, Mike Myers too. I like Mike Myers a lot. He seems like a cool guy. I think he's a more interesting character. I think just like Halloween, just on a different level even than Friday the 13th. Obviously, Friday the 13th definitely helped again pave the way for the slasher genre in those horror movies in the 1980s and um, early 90s and mm -hmm. even Scream and everything. But I think Halloween, uh, an audience member can connect to it even more. Um, the I characters, feel, I think. I find yeah. more empathy for Mike Myers in the first one. Um, and yeah, the characters are better. The story's better. The acting's better. The filmmaking's better. I mean, Wes Craven, I mean... John Carpenter, much better filmmaker than Cunningham. Yeah. That's hands down. That's a Car fact. Carpenter's a great filmmaker. We talked about it when he made The Thing and it failed and it pretty much plateaued his career. Imagine the movies he could have made if he got big budgets. Yeah, not that Friday 13th franchise isn't bad. Obviously, there are some fucking duds in that in that franchise. But there are what do you mean, like Jason X? There are duds in the <laughs> Jason in space. space. There are duds in every horror franchise. But again, the filmmaking is just at a higher caliber in Halloween. Yeah, and this the filmmaking in this, there's a lot of handheld. There's a lot of POV, very much voyeuristic-like Halloween. But more so POV in this where most of the, pretty much all of the kills take place in POV shots where 
you just see the hands of the killer in your in their point of view killing these young teens because it ends up being a twist who the killer actually is. Yeah, and of all the movies in this episode that we're talking about, I think Friday the 13th probably holds up the least in terms of like being timeless. Um, the gore effects actually are, are pretty good in this movie. There are some gore effects that actually aren't that great. Kevin Bacon's death is good. Uh, yeah, yeah, Kevin Bacon's death is solid. The, the knife slit on the throat is, is great early in the film. But the acting in this film is is pretty bad. The characters are generally forgettable. Stories just uh, there's yeah. no story at all. Again, this seemed yeah. like a real rushed project. Like let's let's try to piggyback on the wave that Halloween just created. Yeah, I think you're right. The fight scenes are pretty bad, comical at times. Um, too many cliches and tropes that they didn't really embrace, but tried to like make it seem genuine just didn't work out like the strip monopoly is just like who plays strip monopoly like you'd be naked by the time you go around go yeah this like what are even how what do you when do you strip yeah and it it had even though it's also uh had a higher budget than halloween it has an even more amateurish quality to it um not saying that it's not an iconic film but just this doesn't have the same quality that Halloween has. Yeah, I agree. I totally, I totally agree with that. Because if you watch Friday the Thirteenth again, it, it's a, it's a good movie, but also it's not Halloween. I totally agree. And then, but this movie does take the interesting turn where we're used to, we're expecting the killer to be like some giant, imposing force of, of nature, like some strange, unstoppable killer, like Mike Myers. But it ends up being. Jason Voorhees' mother, Pamela Voorhees. Because what happened was the opening of the film takes place in 1958 um, where there's a double murder of the teens, obviously, by the POV killer. And this happens because a child drowned at that camp while counselors weren't paying attention, and the child was Jason Voorhees. And Pamela Voorhees is the one who committed those original murders out of revenge for her son, and then is committing the murders of all these counselors when the camp is trying to reopen because she wants more vengeance for her son and she doesn't want the park to open. And they actually didn't even cast this actress until more than halfway through filming. And they they got away with this because, like we said earlier, all of the killings are shot in POV. So they actually just use random guys on set to act out as the killer's hands killing these teens. So they didn't even need her for those scenes. Yeah, Betsy Palmer... Only took the role because she wanted a new car, needed a new car because she was actually like a pretty well-known actress at the time, and she wasn't originally cast, but the next person dropped out, so she took it just to be able to buy a new car. I hope she made a back-end deal. (laughs) (laughs) Probably not. The amount of money this movie made. This is obviously an iconic slasher movie. If you want to watch something with people getting killed, if you like gore, if you like blood, if you like 80s synth music, like this is right up your alley. The end of the film is kind of anticlimactic. Again, we have this kind of like bad fight scene between the final survivor and, and Pamela Voorhees because throughout the film, Pamela is just like an amazing killer and doesn't miss, but then she can't kill this final girl. But Alice eventually is able to overcome Miss Voorhees and even chops her head off. <laughs> yeah, it's a great shot. She just takes the knife and just like slices it right off. Which I don't think would happen. Nah, nah, she doesn't have the strength to do that. But then the ending of this film is pretty nuts because it's a good ending. She's so scared of of the beach and of the campgrounds that she just wants to get away from it. And so she takes one of the little boats or canoes to the middle of the lake and she falls asleep there. And the police show up uh, in the morning. And then she wakes up and she's about to call it to the police. 
but then a child jumps out from inside the lake like a zombie child and just takes her underwater. But so, then she wakes up. Yeah, it's a great ending. It's fun. She wakes up and they're and she asks about the boy and they're like, "There's no boy." It's a good scare. So it's a good way to you know set up. Are there going to be possible sequels to this original original movie? Yeah, exactly. Which obviously there were. It's pretty funny to think about how how famous Kevin Bacon got, like just a couple of years after this movie. He got killed so fast too. Yeah, because he he did Footloose like a, a year after this movie. Yeah, he barely had a cup of coffee in this movie. Yeah, and blew Footloose blew him up big time. To try to build up publicity for the project, Cunningham was advertising for the film's release in magazines uh, like the 1979 edition of Variety, and he hadn't even gotten full financing for the project yet. The final film in this episode is The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, which was directed by Toby Hooper in 1974. While en route to visit family, a young group of friends fall victim to a family of cannibalistic psychopaths and must survive the terrors of Leatherface and his family. This film stars Gunnar Hansen, Marilyn Burns, Alan Dasinger, Paul Parton, and Edwin Neal. It had a budget of only $140,000 and had a box office of $30 million worldwide. I think that this is hands down one of the most disturbing movies I've ever seen. It's still, when you watch it to this day, it just it gets at you, you know what I mean? Yeah, and the ironic thing about it is people, when people think about the Texas Chainsaw Massacre... They think it's like full of gore. They think it's like one of the most just like um, bloody films you'll ever see. But really, there's not that much blood in the movie in terms of gore. But really, a lot of the violence is off screen or or they show things that happen afterwards. But they do an incredible job of making you feel incredibly uncomfortable throughout this film with just the decor around the house and like the rotten food, the rotten. There's bodies. There's bones hanging from strings. There's bone furniture. There's all sorts of creepy, disgusting stuff in this movie. Yeah, so exactly to your point, I think that the movie, it's not so scary because of the gore, because obviously there's not that much actual gore. What's so terrifying are the situations. It's the, it's the characters, it's this crazy family, it's Leatherface, it's it's the sets, it's the, the heat, you know what I mean? It's just, it's so visceral, and even though they don't show anyone getting killed, like dismembered, and they're not showing the actual gore, just the situations themselves are what are so horrifying. Like when when the girl is tied up to the chair with this insane psychotic family of cannibals, it's just horrifying. Yeah, and also I think um, he shot this 16 millimeter, and that gives this like this very gritty, realistic, um, raw feeling to the entire film, and it makes it even more disturbing. And it adds to the atmosphere. And also, the film is sort of, at times, looks kind of like found footage at times. Of course, there are some like dolly shots and tracking shots, but it seems like he filmed it kind of like that documentary style at times. Very handheld. Where it seems like you're kind of just watching something take place rather than like a normal movie. Um, and I think that makes it even more disturbing to make it seem like it actually could be happening. It has happened. Even though the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, people say all the time, it was based on true events, and they have that opening text crawl in the beginning of the movie, like a like a, instead of like Star Wars, it looks like a newspaper clipping, but yellow font. Yeah, they created that to trick audiences into thinking it was a real story. I thought it was a real story. Me when too. I was a kid. For years, I thought it was true. It's it's just loosely kind of inspired by a real serial killer. There wasn't really a guy named Leatherface with fake face. There's no chainsaw, chainsaw and like yeah. a cannibalistic family. So it's mostly made up, but 
everyone thought it was true for years. It's a slasher movie, but it also has a very deep theme about animal cruelty and meat manufacturing. And the teens in this film, they're killed as if they are cattle. Like, they're killed with a bludgeon. They're killed by hanging them on a hook, a meat hook. They're killed by cutting them in half with a chainsaw. Yeah, and even Leatherface has the apron. And so this film is a commentary on the meat industry, animal cruelty, depicting how animals are butchered for the consumption by humans. And also, so the horrors that take place within this home, they're hidden from the rest of the world. They're isolated. And that's what all the meat factories across the world are like. We, don't, we, eat, these, we eat this food, but we don't know how it's made. All of these factories, they're hidden from view. And the public has no idea what's really going on in these facilities because horrible things are happening to the animals, just like horrible things are happening to the people in this movie. Did you know that the director of this film tried to make it to get a PG rating? He thought that he could do like all the violence off camera and like not show any blood. But what he didn't realize is what he did was make the film even more terrifying by insinuating all this violence and creating this intense tension throughout the entire film. Yeah, I agree. It is scarier because you don't see that stuff. But also, I think just this, the the ideas and the setups and the characters are so scary, there's no way it would have ever been PG. Yeah, and Leatherface is a terrifying character. He's an icon in the horror genre for sure. But the thing with Leatherface is he's a he's a mentally challenged person. Um, he's not super intelligent. He can't speak. He can't speak really. And he's basically a puppet of his family. His family are in control of him. He's a pawn in their sadistic lifestyle. And Leatherface is scared of his family. He is clearly abused. He does what they say. Um, He's basically, you could say he's like the muscle of their serial killing cannibalistic operation. So the Sawyer family is really the true monster in this film. And Leatherface is a scary guy. You know what I mean? He wears another person's face. Uses a chainsaw. Uses a chainsaw. And actually, they were using a real chainsaw, and they were actually really turning it on while having these action scenes with the actors. And several times, there were moments where actors almost got hit with the chainsaw. That is called terrible, low-budget filmmaking. That is not safe at all, and that's what happens when movies are made in the 70s, man, with $170,000. Isn't that crazy? Um yeah, very low budget. They had their they had a horrible time shooting this movie, especially the cast and crew. The the actors had to use reuse the same wardrobe over and over again. They couldn't really af- afford more than one outfit per actor, so they filmed this during a horrible heat wave in Texas. Um, they're constantly smelly. There's rotten food. There's rotten props. Real, real and, rotten animals. Real rotten animals all over the set inside this creepy old house that was. 100 degree nights and everyone's stinking everyone's sweating everyone's just irritable and it actually contributes a lot to the performances of the actors and the overall tension in the film where they're actually feeling all this insanity like i know i would be on the verge of going crazy if i was stuck for like a month filming this movie in texas in that house and especially the actor who played leatherface because he was wearing a a special outfit that they had dyed a certain color and so they couldn't wash it, otherwise the dye would wash out. And so he, they weren't allowed to ever wash his wardrobe, so it stank so bad by the end of production, no one would be near him. And the characters in this film, you know, kind of like Friday the 13th, not super memorable. They serve their purpose in the horror film, which effectively, 
the most disturbing scenes in the film for me is the, the dinner scene with Sally where she's tied up and she's just being tormented and watching this sadistic evil family and it's just terrifying and he gets these amazing close-up shots of her eyeballs just like twitching and going back and forth because she's just waiting when am I gonna die who are these people what the hell is going on these people are crazy I'm terrified I'm scared out of my life and it's just really airy these quick close-ups of her eyeballs just like multiple shots of them his filmmaking in this is actually very strong and it's a huge in stark contrast from a movie like Halloween and Friday the 13th. Like he's just, his filmmaking is just very extreme in this, in the way, the in how he filmed it. Yeah, and the final shot is actually horribly terrifying and surrealistically beautiful at the same time with Leatherface, this deranged maniac wielding a chainsaw just as violently as he can, flo- throwing it around all over him. And in the background, is, and this is after Sally gets away in that pickup truck, and there's just this beautiful sunset behind him. It's one of the greatest shots in the movie. It's probably the best shot in the film. I don't watch this movie too often because the entire time I watch it, I mean, I think I've seen it three times. I'm just uncomfortable the it, whole yeah. time. That's a good way to describe it. It makes you uncomfortable. The entire film uncomfortable. You definitely do not want to watch this with a with a significant other on a date, unless uh, they're like night. a horror fan. Yeah, but um, it's not a date night movie for sure. Um, it's not one of those horror movies. And the weird thing about it is, like, when you watch it, you're like, how did this spawn a franchise? Like, mm. it seems like it it worked, it worked worked would work best as just, like, a solo. This is what this is, this crazy maniac with a chainsaw. But then it spawns so many sequels and remakes, it's kind of surprising. But then, you know, you, you never know what's going to happen in the horror genre. So, I mean, it also pays testament to the filmmaking of the movie. Despite $170,000 budget, it doesn't really look like it. People like killers, man. People are... There's an attractive nature to the idea of people who kill other people, and it's more that we're curious about it, fascinated, fascinated by it. by it, not in a positive way, but just to see the depiction of the evils of humanity. Because for the most part, most of us are are good, decent, kind people that would never hurt anyone else willingly. But then the but there is the idea that there are some bad people out there. There are people out there that want to kill other people. There are people out there that, that want to cause others harm. And so I think there's something um, really fascinating about seeing that captured on the movie. There's a reason why the serial killer podcast Crime Junkies is the number one podcast on the planet. Really? Wow. Number one. Damn. People we're have, trying to get there. We, I don't think we'll get there because we're movies. But well, we're not, unless we just do serial killers. We're trying to get number one movie podcast on the planet, which I'll settle for. We but make there's happen. a reason why that's number one. Yeah, people are just, they're fascinated by um, killers and death. And I just want to say, I just want to mention, there's been a recent horror film, a, a recent slasher film that I really enjoyed uh, called Happy Death Day, which is a lot of fun, very scary, and all in all is a great slasher movie. And they, they take the Groundhog Day concept of the repeating day and they put a, they mesh it with a, a slasher horror film. And so it's a great blend of the genres. And I think if anyone hasn't seen it, if you like, if you like scary movies and you also like to laugh, it's, it's a great horror film, and I think you should check it out for sure. And, of course, there are slasher films that didn't make this episode that I'm sure we'll cover eventually, like Child's Play. I'm sure we'll do Child's Play at some point. Uh, we just d- it didn't make our top five for slasher flicks and slasher icons, even though I'm sure he's in a lot of people's top fives. Nothing against Chucky. 
He's terrifying. Um, he's terrifying as fuck. Yeah, and uh, uh, I even was thinking about having. I was gonna have nightmares just talking about him. I honestly didn't want to edit the episode with him in it because I didn't want to keep seeing images of him. <laughs> <laughs> Freddie, I'd be fine with, but Chucky, man, he's just scary as hell. Now, I know the the remake's actually pretty good, the new one, but um, we'll, we'll save that for some other time, maybe next Halloween, or maybe we'll we'll jump back into the horror for a little bit. But this is gonna be our last horror episode for October. For now, we're gonna take a break from the horror genre. So don't worry, some of you, I'm sure, have been waiting for. To get out of the horror genre, yeah, it's over. This is the end. <laughs> We're bouncing back next week with uh, the exact opposite of horror. So get ready for that. We won't t- we won't tell you what it is yet, but it's a very good episode, and we have some great things planned. So keep staying tuned. So thank you so much for tuning, in, everybody. This ends episode thirty three of Rares of Lost Podcast Slasher Icons episode. Subscribe to the YouTube channel if you haven't already. Follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, wherever you listen to podcasts, you can find us. Support us on Patreon monthly for perks like a personalized video and a monthly shout-out for top-tier patrons. Don't forget to check out our sponsors, MoviePosters.com and Manscaped using our coupon codes for discounts at your checkout. Thanks Thanks so much much for tuning in. in. That was so lame.